uh, avail yourself of it. We are going to be looking at that chapter extensively. If you haven't been here for a while or you're new to Garden Chapel, we are in the midst of a series entitled Love at Last Sight, a play on words of love at first sight. But this is being able to look at a relationship, a love relationship, and when you look back on it, you can see that you've chosen to love more, and it has brought about the desired results. You can look back with joy at the relationships you've had in life. This morning, the third sermon is the art of risking awkwardness. Whenever you are going to live by faith and be obedient to Christ, it's always based on truth. It's always based on the Word of God. It's always based on reality. It's based on God working in us. The risk is you haven't seen the end result yet. You don't know what's going to happen when you're obedient to Christ. The end result is still somewhere there. Because when you choose to love someone, choose to be all there, choose to intentionally work in that person's life, you don't know what. That person could turn on you. They could write you off. They could, they could do all kinds of things. I was thinking as I prepared this sermon, and we had the concert last night. Thanks for everyone that participated in that. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, and right now, I am failing to get a name, but it's Deontay's mom. And what is your name? Shannon. Shannon, that's right. I could not remember it, and I tried to get Mary Beth's attention. Last night she gave her testimony. She is a part of what has happened through safe families. I'm going to tell you, if you're going to do like the Rombergers and other people, reach out and help other families, you're taking a risk. Really, you are. If you reach out and adopt a child, as some of you have done, or foster parents, I've taken in others, reached out, gone out of your comfort zone, That's an awkward place to be. It's a risk. I try not to get emotional up here, but I can't pronounce your name. Dante's mom. Deontay's mom. Okay, I can remember that for some reason. I couldn't sing that last song. If you were looking up here, I couldn't sing because I was looking back and she's back there crying her eyes out. And I'm up here just about losing it too. Because you know what? The truth of the matter is the Rombergers went out of their way. It's not an easy thing. They've done it before. It's hard to risk. This morning, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at four men who took a risk. A fifth man who was the object. And we're going to look at the Savior who made it all worthwhile in the end. That's what we're going to look at this morning if you haven't looked ahead. I remember when I first started at Garden Chapel, uh, Garden Chapel was one of those churches that in um, Bible school they warned you about. They said, you young guys, if you're going to go out there and be a pastor, be aware of those little churches that haven't grown for a while, and that's just the way they are, and that's the way they want to be because that's who they are. So be aware. Guess what God called me to? Garden Chapel, 24 people. Uh, And by the way, within the first uh, couple of months, about half of those people left the church because they didn't like 
the Bible being taught. And I know that for sure because I talked to them and they told me they didn't believe children could trust Christ. They didn't believe that you had to be born again. They believed that just going to church. I I heard all kinds of things in that amount of time. And people left. Boy, that's a blow. I'll tell you what, it was awkward. I remember, uh, I didn't know anybody at Garden Chapel. I didn't even know Bob Breon, and he's one of the few left here. Uh, But uh, I didn't even know Bob at that point. I think I knew who he was, but that's it. And I remember being just making myself available just to fill in. I had no interest in being the pastor of Garden Chapel at that point. I was going a totally different direction. And uh, I preached one sermon in July, and that's 26 years ago. Um, And I preached it from John chapter 3, you must be born again. I figured it might be the only time I ever get to speak at Garden Chapel. And I didn't hear anything for six weeks. And I said to my wife, boy, they did not like what I had to say. And I'll never, never hear from them again. Uh, That was not true. Six uh, weeks later, they said, hey, look, we still don't have a pastor. Could you fill in meanwhile? And that was Thanksgiving Day. And I was there um, for several more weeks and then they said, well, we still don't have a pastor candidate. Would you be a candidate? Now, you have to understand, during that time, I had decided if, and I thought I'm just going to be there for maybe weeks or months at the most. I had no idea. And I decided that I wanted to visit the leaders of Garden Chapel. One of the most awkward visits, and I've never told Bob this yet, but it was to Bob and Dottie Breon's house. By the way, I don't know if you know, that was the first visit I ever made Uh, from Garden Chapel, as a representative of Garden Chapel. And I remember, I poured over what I was going to say to the Breons. I had a little notebook. I had all the questions I wanted to ask them in there. All kinds of stuff. And I also knew I wanted to give the gospel. Nervous. I don't know if I've ever been more nervous or not. Bob, you don't make me nervous anymore, but you did back then. Okay. And I had the privilege of asking a whole bunch of questions because Bob, at that point, was an unbeliever, but he was the chairman of the elder board. And praise the Lord, that night I had the privilege of giving the gospel. And I asked Bob, had he ever done it? No. Would you like to? Yes. And I thought, no, this is too easy. So I went back over the gospel again. I don't know if you remember this, Bob, but I went back over it again just to make sure that he knew what I was talking about. And praise the Lord, that night, Bob Breon trusted Christ as a Savior. Now, i got to tell you, that was awkward. Here he is, an older, distinguished gentleman. I'm just this young guy getting started. Uh, Him and his wife, classy people all the way. That was awkward. There was a risk. But you know what? It was worth it. Praise the Lord. Uh, A few weeks later, they asked me to be a candidate, and they actually voted to bring me in and 25 and a half, almost 26 years later, I'm still here. I figured they asked me and don't know how to get rid of me, but uh, that's, I'm still here anyway. But you know what? The point is, anytime there is a meaningful relationship, a love relationship, there's always risk. Why? Because when you act by faith, you don't know the end result. When you act in love, you cannot demand a return. You simply do what's right and good and proper with God's help and God's wisdom. And the results have to come from a different place. There's always risk. And it always makes me nervous. And it still does to this point. Not quite the same as it used to. But there's still an awkwardness. And taking the first step 
is always the hardest, at least for me. Once I've got over that first step, it's like, okay, now I get in a rhythm and I know where I want to go and what I want to do. But I don't know about you, but I have a comfort zone that's got a brick wall around it. I don't like getting out of that. I'm an old Pennsylvania Dutchman, and we kind of like it the way it is. And Well, anyway, it's hard to get through those thick skulls. The point is, every time that I'm obedient, reach out with risk to build the relationship, mend a relationship, restore a relationship, it's not easy. If you think it's easy standing up here reading an announcement like I read this morning, uh, I challenge you to come on up here sometime and do that. It's not. It's a risk. But it's a risk worth taking because we want to see a positive, godly plus result at the end. No relationship will ever grow deeper or stronger if there's not risk. If you are content with shallow relationships that are surface, you don't need to risk much. You can shake hands with people, smile at them, and move on. And they think you're a friendly, nice person. But you don't really know that person. It requires you to share your heart with someone else. If you think about it, and we have used, and I have used, I should say, as the key verse for this, is he loved them to the end, referring to Jesus, Jesus referring to his disciples. He loved them to the very end. Believe me, they were not a bunch of lovable guys at times. But today we're going to move beyond that because ultimately... Lasting relationships don't just happen. They require making choices. We've talked about that in the past. But it requires taking a risk. And today, just to understand that this is not just about human relationships. And it's not just something we need to do. Think about this. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the, of the Trinity, who dwelt for all eternity past in absolute glory, absolute perfection, perfect fellowship, no hardship, all of those things, was willing to come to earth, take on a human body like ours, yet without sin, live in a sin-cursed world among sinful people, dealing with all the things that we deal with, that was not his comfort zone. Now, I realize he's God. But let's face it. I have nothing to say this morning if it's not based on what Christ has done for us. We rightly so say that his sacrifice that he gave for our sins was on the cross. And that's true. That's the primary one. But I like to point out that there was a sacrifice that Jesus Christ did before he died on the cross. And that was taking on a human body. Coming from heaven and identifying with us. He took a risk. By the way, he would have done it if no single person had ever trusted him. He would have died for our sins anyway. He doesn't force it on us. Remember, a love relationship doesn't force a response. But it requires us to do the right thing. And that's always what we need to do when it's in relationships. To take God at his word. He became flesh and tabernacled. Lived in a tent. An earthly tent. A body. 
among us. It veiled his glory. But the truth of the matter is, he is the one who showed the glory of God to us in human flesh. None of this comes naturally. Naturally, I'm about me. Selfishness is the exact opposite of love. You've heard me say that many times. We say hate, that'd be true. Apathy, that would be true. Lust, that would be true. But biblically, love does not seek its own. The exact opposite of that is I seek my own, which is self-centeredness or selfishness. That helps me to agree with myself that staying in my comfort zone is okay. (laughs) Because reaching out always requires us to go beyond Some of you know that uh, we have a garden tractor pulling ministry here at Garden Chapel. Nobody else does that. I don't know any other pastors that do that. But I can remember looking back, knowing that if I'm going to continue in garden tractor pulling, God had a purpose for it, and he wanted me to use it in ministry. The elders and the servants here agreed with me. They asked me a million questions. We asked the insurance people questions, the police questions, the EMS questions. We, we answered all those questions, and they said, okay, go ahead and do it. And I can remember thinking the first time we had a, a, a meet, we always have a driver's meeting, and I knew for the first time these tractor pullers had ever seen anything like that, I was going to give a gospel message, just a short one, and have a word of prayer. Tell you the truth, I fretted about that, and it was not fun. Because these guys do not come to tractor pulls to hear a preacher talk about the Bible or somebody give a gospel testimony or uh, any of those kinds of things. And I thought, this will be the last time any of these people ever show up at Garden Chapel. Praise the Lord. It's, I think, eight years later, and they still show up. Uh, And they're respectful. And uh, I've had the opportunity of talking with many of them, uh, praying with them, Uh, counseling with them as a result of that. I'm going to tell you, it was not easy. It was a risk. It was awkward. All relationships that are going to be deep and going to be strong are going to require that. Any relationship that has maturity is going to require, I go out of my way, out of my comfort zone, out of my box. Let's look at the passage this morning. And look at it just uh, for what it exactly says. It says in verse 1 of Mark chapter 2, And he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards. It was heard that he was at home. If you use King James Version, it says the home. I don't care which way you translate it. Here's what it comes down to. It was a specific house, and it was what he called home. It was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was not a place that was all that friendly to the message of the gospel. In fact, is it had been predicted, it had been prophesied that Capernaum would be done away with. And by the way, to this day, nobody knows exactly where Capernaum was located because it was wiped out that completely and ultimately. But Jesus chose, and I believe you can look at it and you've got to use a little imagination, but I believe it was Peter's house because it's a very specific house. And uh, Peter is the one that uh, Mark is talking about basically here uh, when he writes this. I believe it's Peter's house. The people that took off the roof were not a bunch of vandals. 
They were not a bunch of people destroying property. They were not disrespectful for other people's property. They weren't trespassing on somebody else's house. I believe they were either friends, ministry associates, or relatives. When you look at it, I think you understand that. A lot of times it's like seen as a bunch of people just one day decided to go take somebody's roof off. I don't think that was it. It doesn't seem to be that at all. Uh, there are a number of other parallel, parallel passages that make it clear that Capernaum was now his adopted hometown. I believe Peter's house was his adopted family while he was ministering there. And it says in verse 2 that many were gathered so that there was no longer any room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. When you say the house was full enough or the church was full enough, they were busting, bursting out the doors. Uh, Pennsylvania Dutch, we say busting out the doors. But anyhow, uh, that's exactly what they were doing. The door wouldn't shut anymore. There were that many people. It was just packed. And that's what was happening. Now, you might say, wow, all these people wanting to hear what Jesus had to say. That would be a wonderful story. That's a part of the story. In that crowd, there were some other people. They were not there because they were fans of Jesus. In fact is, they were there to pick him apart and see what they could find to accuse him. This one says, teachers of the law. Other places, uh, the parallel passages say it was the scribes who are the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. They wanted the spotlight for themselves. They wanted everybody to follow their direction. Jesus flew right in the face of their organized religiosity. He was the real deal. His words backed up. I mean, his actions backed up his words. And people listened to him and they followed him. And he had something to say. And it made sense. And it brought spiritual healing to people. And so people wanted to be there. And of course... They didn't like that. In fact, is it says there were those that came bringing him a paralytic. And he, was, he was carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. You all know the story. And maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But most Palestinian houses had an outside stairway that went up to a rooftop. Kind of use it like a patio or a porch or just a place to sit out and just relax. Another room in the house with a high ceiling, you know. That's what it was. And the floor, they didn't have a lot of rain. The floor was made out of clay tile. On top of that, there might be some thatch and there might even be some soil and things like that. Underneath that would be lath that would hold up the tile. Think about this. This is not like ripping off shingles on a roof here. That would be a little bit different. But with tile roof, you can actually undo them. Think about this. It's work, and there are a room full of people right below them. Everybody, I've done demolition and, and uh, remodeling work. There's a lot of dirt before you get the new. So they're tearing off this roof. Everybody down below is getting dirt in their hair and, you know, they're getting dirt on top of them. So when you talk about awkward taking a risk, you know, they could have got cursed by some of those people that were there because of what they were doing. But that's exactly what they did. And uh, as they're doing that, they lower him down. Now, 
I don't know. It says it was that stuff that they were bulging out the door. Somebody had to make room even for the pallet to get down. You think about the awkwardness and the risk they're taking. Jesus could have said, hey, why are you interrupting? I got all these people here uh, that want to hear what I have to say. Now you're interrupting me. He didn't do that, by the way. We don't know what the people said. We know what some were thinking. And that's where we're going with this whole thing. Verse 5 says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to a paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Parallel passage says, Friends, friend, your sins are forgiven. Notice what it says. Seeing their faith. I want to I, I just tell you this before we get into our little outline that we're going to do at the end of the sermon. But notice, it doesn't say they were loudly proclaiming their faith. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, is there are no words recorded of these people, these five people. There are no words recorded. It says, Jesus seeing their faith. I propose to you, I challenge you, don't tell me about your faith. Don't tell me about your faith. By the way, I'd be glad to listen. But if that's all you do, I don't care. Sorry, makes it cold. But you know what? Faith is something like love. That's worthless if all you do is talk about it. See, don't tell your wife you love her. Don't tell your kids you love them. Don't tell your neighbors or somebody here at church that you love them. Show them. I don't care if you tell them. But if your words are not backed up by your actions, you're a hypocrite. The fact is, it's worse than not saying anything at all because you just made a fool out of yourself. These people didn't say anything. But what did they believe? They believed that Jesus could heal their friend. They went to the bother of picking him up and carrying him. Somewhere along the line, he either asked them or they asked him, Hey, do you want us to take you to Jesus? He's in town again. You want us to go? He might have gone to them. Hey, look, I'd like to get there, but I can't get there. Could you carry me? I don't know how it happened. It doesn't tell us. All I know is a lot of risk was going on. A lot of awkwardness was going on. It wasn't easy. It was outside of the normal. I don't know of any other place where anything like this was done. But in this case, it was. He said, seeing their faith. Notice, it says their faith. I believe it's talking about four men carrying a bed and one man in a bed. They all believed that Jesus would make a difference. And he saw their faith. Now, verse 6 tells us what I've said about earlier. But some of the scribes, and I said other places it says there were Pharisees there, were sitting there and reasoning in the heart. They were taking inventory. They were having an estimate of what's going on. What the world? What do these guys think is going on? And mostly is, hold a second, who does this Jesus think he is? Because that's what it comes. It says, verse 7, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they knew from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be one that would not only heal people physically, but that he would heal them spiritually. There's one classic passage in the Old Testament that you, if that was the only one you had, it would suffice for this. It's Isaiah 53. I'm just going to just give you a few selected phrases from that. Verse 3, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. 
Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon Him. He was scourged for our healing. Verse 8, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, He would render Himself a guilt offering. Somebody knew they were guilty, they would come to the temple and bring a guilt offering to cover that sin for a short time. Verse 11, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will declare them righteous. They knew that. He will bear their iniquities. He will take them on his shoulder. And verse 12, he himself bore the sin of many and interceded, spoke up on the behalf of those who transgressed. They knew from the Old Testament that the Messiah would do those things. And when Jesus said, Son, friend, your sins are forgiven, they instantly knew He was claiming to be the Messiah. And they didn't like that. They already knew that He showed them up. But now He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Because only God, and they were right, only God can forgive sin. And He was claiming to forgive sin, so He's calling Himself God. They knew exactly what He was talking about. They didn't say it, but here's what happened. Just like those men had faith and acted upon it, their body language was so great, and Jesus knew in His Spirit, and by the way, Jesus always answered people according to the intent of their heart. Look it up in all the Gospels. You'll find it over and over again. He didn't. When some of His answers don't seem to fit the questions. That's because He dug right through the question, right through the, the facade on the outside, and got right to the core of why they were asking what they were asking or saying what they were saying. In this case, they didn't even say anything. He gets right to the core of it. And... Uh, It says in verse 8, immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now, I could say to anyone, your sins are forgiven. Nobody could prove that that happened or not. Because you can't see it. It's not visible. It's not immediate. If somebody is have their sins forgiven and live that way, obviously you're going to see a difference in their life. And that would be true. But it's not immediate. It's not verifiable on the spot. And so Jesus said, you know what? I have the power to forgive sins. But just so you get it, just so you don't call me a fraud, just so you don't think I'm blaspheming. Blaspheming means speaking evil about God. He said, just so you don't think that, I'm going to say to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And that's, of course, as you know the end of the story, that's exactly what he said. Verse 10, picking it up. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Now, nobody doubted that Jesus could actually heal him spiritually. I mean, physically, I'm sorry. But what they had a problem with was the sin part. He was able to do both of them. He pronounced both of them. 
Immediately visible, immediately verifiable. Verse 12. Remember I said the end result? The love at last sight, being able to look back and say, wow, this really works. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all. Now, notice it says all. So that means scribes, Pharisees, and everybody. They got, they got put in their place here real quick. They were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Wow. Okay, now let's go back. How does this apply to love at last sight? Taking risk. I'm going to just use the word risk and use that for a real quick outline. We need to reach out to other people. If you're going to have a relationship that is strong, a relationship that matters, a relationship that is going to have a good ending... You need to take the initiative. The first step is the most awkward. It's the most risk. It's the hardest one. Think about this. You pick up your friend. You're taking him up the stairs. You're pulling back the, the tile. People are looking up. They're like, what the world is going on here? By the way, that's not any version of Scripture. That's my version. It's, you know, something's going on. There's a distraction going on. But you know what? They went out of their way. They did what they needed to do. Think about this. What do we do sometimes for a relationship that we know isn't right or one that we should develop? We say, I'll pray for them. Am I against praying? Absolutely not. Because if you're going to do something, you should pray about it. Okay? I believe that's biblical. Poor man. I I wish he could get to Jesus. Isn't this so sad? We can pick on them if they would have done that. But guess what? We do exactly the same thing. We know somebody has a need. We know our spouse is hurting. We know our children are alienated from us. We know our neighbors are having a problem with us. Yeah, they got a problem. And we leave it there. You know what? If you're going to have a relationship that matters, grows deep, grows strong, matures... You're going to have to take the first step. You're going to have to reach out. We don't wait for somebody else. It's going to require an intimate relationship. We have to know that we need to take the first step. We need to be available and take the time to do it. That's the first part of that. I'm not waiting for somebody to come to me and say, I have a need. If I'm going to develop a relationship, it's on you. I don't care what it is. They wronged me. They did me in. They ignored me. You know, I don't care what they've done. They owe me money. It it doesn't matter. You know what? If you're going to develop that relationship, you need to take the first step. That's the first part. And you need to be accessible and vulnerable. You've heard me say from this pulpit many times, ministry is messy. And I stand by that. But I'll tell you what else is messy? Relationships. Did anybody here ever have a perfect... I'm not talking about your relationship with God. Even that one's messed up, but not because of God's side, your side. Ever have a perfect relationship? If you do, I want you to come up here and tell us about it. Anybody? No takers? Okay. You know what? Relationships are messy. You make it messy, the other person makes it messy. 
I don't care if it's a pastor with the congregation. I don't care. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care where it is. It doesn't matter. Relationships are messy. And unless you're vulnerable, unless you're accessible, unless you're willing to take the first step, nothing good is going to come out of it. It takes time. It takes effort. It's expensive. It requires me to listen. In fact is, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Wow. Fulfill, fulfill the law of Christ? It's not the Old Testament law. That one says just don't shoot your neighbor. This one says love your neighbor. It goes way, way above that last one. So let me ask you questions. And we'll do this quickly. Whose burden have you lightened lately? It's probably somebody really close to you. By the way, did you ever notice... If somebody cut you off on the way to church here, you can forgive them, move on, and never think about it again. But I'll tell you what, if your spouse gave you a few cross words, boy, that one's hard to swallow. Or your kid was disobedient, or your neighbor yelled at you for making too much noise, whatever it is. You know, the closer it is, the harder it is. I propose to you, my job, your job, is to shoulder that relationship. By the way, whose heavy load are you shouldering right now? Not a sermon that's easy to deal with. Whose hands and feet are you because the person is paralyzed? Oh, I don't necessarily mean they can't move their hands and feet. Might be that. But they might be spiritually paralyzed. Their emotions are shot. They can't see... They can't see above the trees. They're, they're just under everything, the load of burden on them. Whose hands and feet and eyes and mouth and support are you? Those are the things that are required if I'm going to develop relationships. A real quick story. Most of you that have been around for a while know who I mean by Big Ron. Big Ron, I will tell you, probably knew him better than anybody else here at church. Still miss him, by the way. He was an oddball. No doubt about it. He was weird, eccentric, a hermit, sometimes smelly, always looked a little like he could wash his clothes. I mean, beard all bushy, scared the living day, daylights out of women and children, not because he did anything, just because he showed up. I mean, literally, he showed up one night at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Saturday night, I was still in my office years ago. He showed up in my doorway. I didn't hear him come in. Scared the living daylights out of me, man. It did. Because he filled just about the whole door. You know what? I didn't intend to reach out and be his advocate. The fact is, it was not something that if you said to me, would you do this? I probably wouldn't want to do it. But it kind of fell that way. Uh, we, I found him one day. He wasn't able to even move out of his chair. Well, it took him five minutes to get out of his chair. And he was dying. And I kind of became not his caretaker, but person that helped him through. He had no money coming in. He couldn't work. He was in bad health. Uh, you name it, everything. I have done things that I never thought I would do. You know what? I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not looking for anything that I just believe 
God put him there. And I believe, looking back, it was a test. It's like, Paul, you preach all this stuff? You willing to do it? I mean, I literally was at his house because he had a cyst on his back. I would go, by the way, some of you are medical people. This is nothing to you. But, you know, it's kind of personal. I'm, I'm pulling the stuffings out of the, the wound and then packing it back in. I'm not a doctor. You know, I'm taking him to the hospital. I'm doing all kinds of things. You walk through the hospital, and he's going, and he acted a little weird at times. You're walking down there with this guy. He's kind of shuffling along, you know, and people are looking. It's like, boy, oh, boy, are you with this guy? You know, you kind of want to step a few paces away. But you know what? Truth of the matter is, most of you don't know what all happened in that. And I haven't made it known, and it's probably the first time few people know this. But I was able to help him. I was the one that found him when he died. Uh, he would not call me. He'd take the phone off the hook. And finally, we found him, and he had already expired for several days when we found him. But you know what? In that process, he went from being a guy who we reached out to, and I was not the only one, by the way. Other people, I know Nick and him were buddies every prayer meeting, that, and I'm sure Nick would say the same thing. I still miss him. But you know what? That guy probably had more money when he was in bad health at the end of his life than he ever had any other time in his life. And he was the only person in 26 years that we helped out as a church. And we did. We, he, was, he wasn't even paying his bills. He was way behind. The, the charity committee reached out to him uh, and paid his bills. We went and talked to his landlord. We did all kinds of stuff. And when it was over and he had some money, he says, Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to pay back what you guys helped me with. And I said, no, 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 no. We didn't give you a loan. That is for you. He says, no, no, no. I know you didn't give me a loan. He said, I want you to be able to do for somebody else what you did for me. And I want to put that back in the charity fund. And what you don't know, for about two years, he made it possible for this church to be in the black. I did his finances. Oh, boy, we had knock them down, drag them out arguments about finances and all kinds of things in life as it was going on. But you know what? The point is this. He gave more generously than any other person I know. And he did. I wrote the checks out, so I know exactly what he gave. I didn't tell him to do it. That was his choice. But you know what? You look back, and I look back, and there were times I'm like, why did God put this guy in my life? This is a pain in the neck. But you know what? The end result was I can look back and by and large can say, I was obedient. It was awkward. It was a risk. People looked at me like, you've got to be kidding. You spend that much time helping this guy. The answer is it was the right thing to do. I'm not, I don't, I don't think of anything great. It was just, it was the right thing to do. But I'll tell you what, it was awkward and it was a risk and it was sometimes weird. You know, it's just the way it was. But if we don't reach out to other people, nothing gets done. So don't tell me, well, this other person, if they got their act together, we'd have a good relationship. We'd restore that relationship. I don't care if it's your marriage or your kids or your neighbors. I don't care. Or somebody here at church. You know what? It's your responsibility. And now I'm out of time, and I'm going to do this very quickly. We need to ignore the discomfort. What is it? They had to go... And do what was necessary. It required work. I have a couple questions. Actually, not questions. They're statements that you need to consider. It may mean admitting you've been wrong about something for years. 
It may mean admitting you're holding a grudge. It may mean admitting you've been abusive. It may mean that you've been neglected, been negligent. It may mean admitting that you're unforgiving. It may be admitting you're stubborn. It may be admitting that you believe lies and gossips and rumors. It may be admitting that you've not been living a spirit-controlled life. It may mean admitting that you have allowed the past to influence the present. It may mean that you're admitting that you're living a lie. It may mean admitting that you've been uncaring, unloving, and apathetic. It may mean that you've been disobedient to God's will. It may mean admitting that you, and I'm going to leave that one blank, because guess what? I could put a list here as long as my arm, and I'd still miss the one. That's you. If you're going to have relationships, you have to ignore the discomfort. And sometimes it's hard. We need to also share our heart without getting real with a person. We need to let people see what's inside of us. Don't tell me, and I already kind of went over this, don't tell me you're praying for somebody if you're not willing to give. Don't say, I'll pray for Bethany Christian Services. Buy a book. Be be there. Work. Do whatever. Faith without works is indeed dead. That's where it's at. That's hard. It's awkward. It's not easy. It means taking, as I said before, the first step. One last thing this morning. Know it's worthwhile. I go back and I hope that you can rejoice with this man. I hope you can rejoice in the same way the crowd rejoiced that day in Capernaum. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. Notice what happened is absolutely seen to everyone. Oh, not because you want to be seen and make a a scene. No. No. Because that's what God does when we do things God's way. We don't do it for the the acclaim or the honor or so somebody will pat us on the back. We don't ever do it for that. You've got the wrong motive if you do that. But the truth of the matter is, if you act by faith, if you build strong relationships, if you admit you're wrong, confess, forgive, whatever it is, you build that relationship, everybody will know it. There's no way to get around that. It will be seen. What is done in the dark will be seen in the light. It says he went out and they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we never have seen anything like this. Never seen anything. I propose to you that if we build relationships, love relationships that stand the test of time, not just a flash in the pan, not just dealing with the hard stuff, but we can look back and say, wow, that was worth it. I propose you that's what the Bible does. That's what Christ does. Think about you. You're an unfinished product without a doubt. (laughs) You got a long way to go. By the way, do I know anything about you? A little bit. But guess what? I'm going to tell you the exact same thing. I've been challenging you 
to choose a relationship that you want or need to improve and make it your goal for the next month. Well, that month part is gone. You can keep going for a year if you want. But I'm going to add something to that today in light of what we just looked at. Choose a relationship that you want or need to improve and ask them what you can do to improve that relationship. Share your heart. I know God wants me to help you. Reach out to you. Ask them what you can do. And then act upon it. You see, I think the paralytic asked his friends, look, I really need to get to this Jesus. I believe he can heal me, but I need help. He asked. I think that's always what we need to do. If you're going to build a relationship, it's not assuming you know what needs to be done. But sometimes we have to ask. And I challenge you that. And that's what this adds to that challenge. Find out what needs to be done. And then by God's grace, God's power, and God's wisdom, carry it out. Let's all stand together as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God that does know our needs. You know us inside and out. Lord, I know that the relationship we have through Jesus Christ is the only one, and he's the only perfect example. But Lord, he not only gave us an example, but he provided through his death, burial, and resurrection the power not only for our own sins to be forgiven, our own salvation, but so we could reach out to other people, risking the awkwardness of relationships, that we could take that first step to restoration, to growth, to deepness, and to maturity. I pray that we would take that to heart and practice it in the week to come. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name.